Oh, delightful. I, I would love to listen to a new episode of Shepherd Queens. I'm sorry. I'm really working on becoming a like perfectly organized machine of a human being, like, you know, Jack Zimmerman on the ice. But alas, I remain like Jack Zimmerman in the rest of his life in many ways. Accidentally a member of NAMBLA, falling in love with strange twinks. It's a problem. I think the thing that Biddy would be most offended by is the idea that he is strange. I'm plenty normal. It's you who's weird. Y'all sound like you're from France. My mother told me when I was small that I was not weird. Oh, and she meant it too. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Alicia is like, Bob, Bob, you can't say that. <laughs> Bob's like, what, Alicia, he's weird. It's all about optics, Bobby. If you just say he's not, then it's fine. Listen, Bob, I took a neurolinguistic programming class in college. <laughs> if you just if you just convince him he's not weird, he'll become, well, not normal, Regular. but closer. Welcome back to Check This, Please, a podcast where we are constructing a counterpublic for the webcomic Check, Please. I'm Secret OMG, and I've already done this wrong because I tried to minimize the Zoom window and it told me I couldn't. Shut the fuck up. Why? I need to see what topic we're fucking talking about. It has been... About an hour of technical difficulties, so uh, enjoy whatever this turns out to sound like. (laughs) We have done this 62 times. Okay, let's back up. Let's take another sip of water. Welcome back to Check This, Please. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm doing it. I'm really seriously doing it. Welcome back to Check This, Please, the podcast where we're constructing a counter public for the webcomic Check Pleased. Today, we are talking about strip 3.6, PB&J, which was originally posted on June 26, 2016. I am Secret OMG, and today I am joined by somebody who cannot smell the vinegar emanating off of my person. Thank God, I'm Tomato. Hi, Tomato. It's been a long road. Would you like to tell us? About what happens in this uh, in this particular strip? Yes. Here's what happens. A day in the life of Jack Zimmerman, professional hockey player, circa fall 2015. Peanut butter and jelly sandwiches made by Biddy with a little note that says, keep working hard. An intense game that sees Jack slammed into the boards and aggressively targeted before he stops a puck with his face. Stitched up. Jack comes home to a mess of Biddy's flashcards on the couch and his sandwich post-its on the fridge. So, thank you. First, I think it's very important to say that this strip is maybe the best strip in all of Check, Please, or at least maybe my very favorite. And I'm so excited to talk about peanut butter and jelly, the most erotic of sandwiches. It's definitely not the best strip in Check, Please, in my accounting. I do think that that is the one after they lose the Frozen Four and Jack cries in the loading dock. Oh, you're so right. Okay. But this is a very, very good strip. And perhaps unsurprisingly, 
for much of it, it follows a very similar pattern, which is wordless scenes that have none of Biddy's stupid narration for his audience. Tomato just spit tea out because apparently the idea of that was so hilarious. But yeah, this is a mostly wordless comic that just shows us ambiently Jack's day. And part of what makes it such a good strip is that you can almost feel like the volume level, so to speak, the kind of quiet of him engaging in the eroticism of his peanut butter sandwich versus the kind of hubbub and like fervor of the hockey game. And then once again, the kind of companionable silence of talking to Biddy on the phone at at the end of the day. So yeah, it's actually quite well done. And we're about to say a whole bunch of things that are like, here's what's fucked up about this. And the answer, if you wish to stop listening here, is plenty. But it's actually, in fact, despite whatever counterpublics we intend to create, quite a good strip that's like actually really effective and like tells its self-contained story well. Unfortunately, it's a story that's completely butt-fucking crazy, (laughs) but we'll get into it. Unfortunately, or fortunately, because again, this strip sets my veins a bubble and ablaze, so so we'll get into it. You have a very good question that you asked about the uh, the overall arc of this strip, which is... How nuts is it that Jack stops this puck by voluntarily skating in front of it? And uh, it's extremely nuts. It's crazy. Well, you know, let's just say this is an ambivalent strip because a lot of the things that we'll be saying are like, well, it's this, but then it's that. And the thing is, like, in the context of the game of hockey, it seems not that nuts. Pretty much the, the rule of the field is that you... Use your body to do whatever you can to win the hockey game. And Jack Zimmerman is the king of hockey. And so if what he has to do to prevent the other team, which team that is unclear from scoring a goal, is putting his face in between a puck and the Falconers goal, I I guess he'll do it. But to be clear, we agree that that's what he's doing. It's not like an accident, right? It's like he's physically skating in front of the puck to stop it. Oh, yeah. The way that the strip unfolds, Jack is at home. He then goes to the hockey game. We see him hitting people. It's a very rough game. And then several strips in, we see this like quick slash of action. They're skating on the ice. He's leaned far over. You see the reflection of the puck in his visor, and then you see it hit him in the face. I think it's very evident that he throws himself in front of the puck in order to prevent it. Like he is, you know, sacrificing the body, as they say, very deliberately in order to prevent the puck. And it happens to hit him in the mouth. Yeah, that's how I've always read it as well, is is that he's, he's physically putting himself like in the puck's way. And again, like in the context of the sport of hockey in the National Hockey League, it's not in fact that crazy. Like people are injured quite violently in this game, not infrequently. And I think this is largely what you're expected to do as a hockey player. But also just the idea that somebody would physically put themselves in the way of a hockey puck is divorced from the context of hockey fucking wild 
I think this is something where the sport itself gets romanticized quite a bit. And I believe that I have gone on and on about this point, the idea that like, why is it that people want to play this fucking violent sport that like gets people nearly killed and so on and so forth. And this is one of, I think, very few moments where you actually see that drawn out in the narrative. Like, whoop, yeah, that's this is actually pretty bloody. Like, he's quite injured. Is it a disabling injury that will impact him negatively for the rest of his life? No, I think he has one moment of, like, probably really intense, but seemingly for him, bearable pain. And then he's stitched up and he has medical care and he goes home and he actually kind of brushes off even the idea that he might get like a scar (laughs) from this healing wound on his face. So, um, you know, in the, in the grand context of Jack's life seems like not that much, but also like, God, just fucking think about getting hit in the face with a goddamn hockey puck and bleeding out of your mouth and having to have stitches in your face. And, like, I know that people have stitches in their face all the time if they have to, but, like, he did it to himself. Yeah, and then I also want to note in this particular strip where he's being hit with the hockey puck and we see the, you know, the the comic sort of red lines indicating that he's been hit and he's suffering a big resounding clash of the hockey puck and then blood shooting from his mouth. There are other strips where this is true as well, but the coloring in this strip is really interesting, or in this panel, rather. The shadow is all pink and red tinged. So this is true in a couple of the other panels as well, but the backgrounds in those other panels don't highlight it as much. Whereas in this particular panel, because the background is completely stripped away and it's just a white background and then him being hit, the way that the shadow falls on his Zimmerman jersey, which is sort of pinkish, just like highlights the violence throughout his whole body, as well as the fact that the other team is red. Like there's something interesting with the color there for me. And I think speaks to the fact of how the sacrifice of the body as it were which i keep saying i I think we mentioned this before is because it's like a common parlance and hockey commentary is like oh you sacrifice the body that's like a weird frequent thing that people say the coloring makes it more violent to me the players on the opposing team and also the ref their visors are obscuring their faces whereas taters is not Peter is also on the ice and he's sort of, you know, gaping with concern at Jack. But you can see his whole face because he's a known character. But these other hockey players who presumably have just gotten Jack injured and also the, the referee who's blowing his whistle in this panel. Yeah, there's something like dehumanizing and like othering, I guess. Yeah, they're they're the opposing team, but about the fact that like they have this almost like Cyclops look, like their appearance is sort of irrelevant. And to the point that this is this is all very like Jack isn't really even playing against like a known team. It's just kind of like the generic idea of like a hockey opponent. I tried to figure out if I could deduce if this is supposed to be a a specific team. And as far as I can tell, it's not. Now, it's possible that like I I overlook something and like looking at various NHL team jerseys, but I basically counted up like every hockey team that uses red in their sweaters, both home and away. And also these, these particular, this particular team, I think they have, what is it, black shorts? 
I don't think there is any actual hockey team that uses this particular outfit combination in such a way that they're identifiable, which means that it's like either she didn't want to like imply an actual team or perhaps also it just like doesn't even matter. I'd say the one exception to this is that as readers will know, Ngozi has made up four fake hockey teams. So Jack is on the Falconers. These are like pretend expansion teams in the NHL in the world of check, please. The Las Vegas Aces who will meet in a couple of strips on the ice. They have black away jerseys and will meet the Seattle Schooners at the end of this year when Jack plays them in the NHL files and they have kind of like teal, like bluish jerseys or something. So they're not this team. There's one team that I think we never meet uh, on the ice at all or see in the comic that Ngozi has included in her kind of fake expansion lineup. And it's the Houston Arrows So I I don't know. I think that's the one team that's kind of like unaccounted for. And I don't think that means that this team is supposed to be that team. I'm just noting that we're at the point when in some senses we're dealing with the most real life hockey violence that we're going to get for like much of the rest of the comic. But also we've kind of left the verisimilitude of like the world of actual hockey teams. The names of these hockey players is not even close to visible. When you see the backs of their sweaters, it's completely just not even filled in. It's just like a white strip where the players' names would be. Whereas previously, if she was drawing like Samwell playing an opposing team, she would like make up some fake names or something. Purposefully or not purposely, I think it sort of speaks to Jack's perspective as now a rookie member of the NHL. And we'll get to the notes that Ngozi writes about his perspective on the team and other people's perspective on him within the NHL. But I think it's about how Jack has sort of taken up this mantle of self-sacrifice for this goal that he's had since he was a child, basically, to you know fulfill his father's skates or whatever. And so I think that in some ways it doesn't it doesn't actually matter who the other team is because the whole point is not that it's a historic rivalry or there's anything personal about it, even if there is. The point is that he is willing to do this, you know, for his team. And it doesn't even matter what the other team is. It's it's really about Jack's relationship with his own daddy figures or whatever you want to call them. And I also want to note that I think there's some really interesting stuff with gender happening in this trip and I'll get more unhinged about that later, almost certainly. But I think that there's something interesting about the way that sort of self-sacrifice, especially embodied self-sacrifice, like literally sacrificing your health, your physical safety, your being for this like bigger team. I think that that is often characterized as a kind of, quote, feminine duty. I don't mean to be gender essentialist, and I don't actually think that that is the purview of any one kind of person. But I think that often when people talk about how women sacrifice for the family or they sacrifice themselves or you talk about the beauty industry or talk about bodies or whatever, like I think that often this is characterized, especially online, as like a feminine duty or a feminine problem. But it's certainly also not just that. I think we often see this when we think about like war and like men's bodies and Ernest Hemingway and can you get it up and like all these, you know, all those like... The long tradition of war novels where men are uh, sad about, you know, something. 
But I think that we can see this connection to sports and violence here. Jack, we've talked about in the past is this very like mask figure, this very butch figure, if you will. And this is him sort of like embodying that to the most intense degree that he can. This is like the most masculine Jack will ever be. And it's in the context of this deeply homoerotic gay relationship that domestically bookends this intense violence in the middle. And so I bring that up because I think there's, I don't have like great conclusions about it necessarily, but I think there's something really interesting happening with the way that gender is portrayed and explored in this comic, in the strip and Jack's leaving of the quiet domestic space into the violent hockey space and sort of performing masculinity and then retreating at the end back to this domestic space is really interesting to me as I don't know, it's a kind of pushing on or, or like questioning of this mask hockey dude he's performing, I guess. Does that make any sense? I don't know, but it makes me feel crazy. So I've said it. We'll continue to iron it out as we talk through this strip. I think the blog post that Ngozi writes to go along with this particular comic is interesting. Sometimes I don't think they're that interesting. Sometimes it's obvious that she's just like doing it, whatever. But here's what this one says. She starts out by saying, in her sort of, you know, dialogue with the theoretical reader, Jack's face is fine. It's hockey. But he got elbowed. It's hockey. But he got hip-checked. It's hockey. But the other team was so lame. It's professional ice hockey in the League of National Hockey. I mean, sure, that was a chippy game and penalties were called, but I have a feeling we're not in the ECAC anymore, Chowder. Plus, how many guys in the NHL want to punch Bad Bob's special snowflake of a son in the face? Talk about getting everything handed to you. How many guys spend half of their careers in the AHL eating bucks? Six-round draft picks working their way up, not cruising into the league after a lovely break at a liberal arts college. There's a lot going on here. The first thing I want to point out is it's very rare that we get Shouter infantilization in a comic that like Shouter is not even in and like not even mentioned in. Like Shouter is nowhere near this comic, but uh, she snuck in some (laughs) calm down Shouter about basically framing him as what like some Wizard of Oz gold standard narrative. I don't know. This thing about how many guys in the NHL want to punch Bad Bob's special snowflake of a son in the face. Oh boy, this was the most delicious thing I'd ever heard. And the thing is like, yeah, right? Okay, you're in the AHL. You watch hockey's brightest star fucking waste it all for no reason when he's 18. And then he goes away. You don't know that he's having an affair with the coach that he's coaching for with children, but you know, whatever. You hear some rumors. And then he comes back, he skates in, and he's the fucking face of a franchise? Excuse me? Of course you would want to slap him in the face, or punch him, or throw a puck into his... Puck, oh my god, or throw a puck into his teeth, or, you know, slash him with your skates, or whatever. And Jack Zimmerman being Jack Zimmerman, a very bad son of bad Bob, perhaps needs to be taken down a notch or so he potentially seems to feel so there's like a really interesting pressing on jack's special special status in the hockey world that ngozi doesn't really investigate too much further but she definitely knows about it 
because here she is making a meal out of it. So she then goes on to conclude this particular series in the blog by having the pretend discussant say, but that's not Jack. He's been through so much. He's so hardworking. The PB&J note said so. Like, these guys care about sandwich notes. Ta! I do not know what ta means. But all of this is really interesting, like the whole thing taken together, because it's kind of like an acknowledgement of the construction of the narrative. Also, it's like almost arguing against Check Please Stand, who would over litigate like what happens in this comic. Like, are we supposed to sympathize with Jack here or not? Like, she's she's very handily kind of playing both sides of an argument about, like, it's really unfair of players to target Jack on the other team and, like, not fair for the romantic interest who we're supposed to care about, have a hard time, and, like, not totally succeed right away. This is the first glimpse of, like, Jack playing serious hockey as a as an NHL player that we actually see this kind of colored my expectations of what his time in the NHL would be like and she's kind of like hopping back and forth between vocalizing the feelings that people who are really invested in this are probably having and also kind of like brushing away the fanciful buying into the narrative (laughs) that she probably expects that readers have done. So it's just like a real bizarre marriage of like realism and romance in this bizarre back and forth. Like she's almost making fun of Biddy writing these notes, right? Like, ugh, like these guys care about sandwich notes. The note said so. Like it, it's almost like she's making fun of how fucking ridiculous it is. But like, no, she isn't. Well, I think that's the thing that Ngozi has been doing. You know, she used the same technique earlier when she was like, will they, won't they? Will they, won't they? We'll see. Wink. Right? So this is the same technique, but it's being used for a more complex, fraught, sandwich-related narrative series of decisions. So it's understated, but that doesn't mean that she's not making fun of them. I legitimately don't know how else to read this note, except as an acknowledgement that while those notes, you know, maybe are meaningful for readers, maybe are meaningful for Biddy and Jack, like, think about it outside of that context. You're some guy who has been fighting your way to the NHL, and this fancy lad comes skating across the ice. Why would you give a shit about his pb and j sandwich notes you know so i don't know how else to read it except as teasing it's like nobody else in the nhl understands jack's interiority the way that somebody reading a web comic about him understands his interiority so the fact that she's putting these two things into dialogue and basically being like the fictional hockey players who are hurting him don't understand him the way that you do, reader, and that's why it's stupid of you to expect that they would. I I mean, on some levels, it's, like, brilliant, but also the fact that she's seemingly, like, taking the piss out of, like, his journey and, like, Biddy writing sandwich notes kind of made me think that she was maybe on the same page as me. Oh, me too! I I thought that she was setting this up to be like, look at these dumb juvenile baby idiots 
Like, I thought that that was her position. Building on the stuff in the previous strip, by the way, where we had that whole, like, your girlfriend and Jack being like, hey, we got to talk over Skype. And I was reading these things together. They were being posted back to back. And I just presumed it was all part of a package of trying to get the reader to be like, here comes trouble. Right. And especially I thought because the first two years were clearly this one kind of story and then it obviously and significantly switched into a different kind of story. These new adult concerns were introduced. These new stakes were introduced and this new relationship was introduced this way. I thought in addition to, you know, Ngozi's general sort of like winky, funny back and forth meta relationship with her readers, etc., I thought that this was about to be like, you thought you knew what you were getting into, though, for because of those first two years. But I'm about to, you know, pull the rug out from under you because I'm about to question all of those narrative techniques I used from years one and two that come straight out of fandom. I'm all of a sudden going to, like, push back on them and hit them in the face, as Jack Zimmerman wishes, you know, a nice hockey man would do for him on occasion, in order to really question the assumptions that you, the reader, have been making about these characters. Like, I really thought that the funny, cynical, interesting way that Ngozi set up Jack and Biddy as these fandom-friendly characters was about to come on its head and be sort of pushed at and looked at and really examined in an interesting narrative way. What's also interesting to me is that Ngozi has this back and forth with her readers, and then the the pushback gets really intense. And I think her relationship with the notes and the readers switches. There's an interesting pushback here against those who are really invested in Jack and Biddy that switches into being a pushback against other fans later, I think. I mean, I just thought like, it's a four-year story. Two years is way too quick for the main plot line to be wrapped up. So these two characters getting together is not going to be easily settled. There's going to to be some sort of conflict between them maybe she's calling out the fact that like their relationship is not that well established and they're gonna have problems and they're not on the same page and the conversation that jack and biddy have after this hockey game i mean i think somebody who really is like fully bought into zimbits and like takes this at what i now understand to be face value would be like oh, this is them having like a loving conversation where Biddy expresses concern and Jack reassures him. But to me, I was like, oh, Biddy fretting about what Jack's face is going to look like is superficial. And like, this is not that deep a conversation. It's not how you would talk to somebody who was going to end up being like your, your deep, like metaphysically romantic partner or whatever. But it's interesting now to reread this whole thing and think about it knowing what I know now, which is, oh, Jack has this beatific look on his face the entire comic through, not because he's a vapid dope, but because he's in perfect love. I don't think he's a vapid dope. I think he's just back on painkillers. Painkillers or benzos? Well, the thing is that they they can both do similar things, can't they? So, uh, so it doesn't really matter. Something that's interesting about this strip and something that kind of carries itself through the rest of the comic for me in regard to Jack and Biddy is that I think their relationship is 
really puerile and babyish and that it's it's full of simple childish joys that a lot of readers find very touching and endearing and compelling and chippy and to me i'm just like these people are why gay liberation stopped with marriage biddy has left a pile of flashcards on jack's couch Biddy's taking French. He has to take one semester of a language class, basically, to graduate college. Colleges in the U.S. do this kind of bullshit. I think this might be something that's different between college in the U.S. and, you know, like university in other countries um, where you're doing a history degree and you're largely taking history courses. Uh, Colleges in the U.S. will be like, you have to take one science class. You have to take one language class. You have to get a well-rounded education and understand not enough of anything, but a little bit of everything. Biddy has to take one semester of French, and this is his one semester of French. And it's not explicitly stated in the comic, but you just sort of know that he's taking French because Jack is French-Canadian and that he primarily speaks Canadian French. The fact that he's left this little pile of flashcards at Jack's apartment, we've already seen them like in the blog post header, I think from, was it the WAG comic? No, it's the next comic, Tomato. It's it's uh, LDA versus PBD, I think. The blog header is Jack and Biddy are sitting on the couch doing flashcards. So we'll see shortly after this what the meaning of those flashcards on the couch is. Biddy has left this pile of flashcards on the couch at Jack's house for a couple of reasons. The subtextual reason is that Jack and Biddy are, like, very enmeshed in each other's lives and spending a lot of time together. The fact that they were leaving clothing in each other's houses in the previous comic, this is, like, more of that. Also, Biddy is just, like, a big fucking disaster who's, like, not a very good student, and so he's just, like, leaving his flashcards in disarray at Jack's house to sort of signify both that he's been there and they've been doing this together, but also he's just like not that invested, not working that hard. Also, I think this kind of draws out the fact that like they are kind of in two different places, not just like Biddy's at Samwell and Jack is in Providence, but like Jack is in the NHL and Biddy is in college. So, like, Biddy is in a whole life stage behind where Jack is. And these flashcards are kind of evidence of it. I think that's also part of what I expected to be explored further in the comic because of the way Ngozi was sort of treating this fraught tension between what the reader might expect and between what the comic actually showed, I really thought that there would be more of an examination in the way that they're now different life stages as well as the age gap between them, the five-year age gap was like maybe going to cause problems for them. Don't worry. It doesn't. They're fine. But I thought that that was coming. In addition to pitting Biddy kind of in an interesting way or triangulating Kent, Biddy, and Jack because Kent and Jack are now in the same position, or at least a more similar position than they would have been in the past. This is also our first glimpse of Jack's apartment, and we see that it is a mostly pretty, like, flavorless beige box kind of thing. It's not an apartment. I'm pretty sure it's a condo. The difference 
listener is that technically speaking, an apartment is rented and a condo is owned. I only point it out because I think it's another way in which their life stages are very different. Like Biddy is still living in the shitty hockey frat house and Jack now owns this <laughs> completely boring, decorated by someone else condominium, which is a marker of adulthood in some ways. Although, do I own a condominium? No. Jack's condo is like, an empty shell lives here. <laughs> All he thinks about is becoming a vessel for uh, for others, you know? So this is our first glimpse of where Jack is living. He's living in a two-bed, two-bath condo in Providence that his mother helped him buy at the end of year two. It wasn't in the comic, but it was in, like, various extras and Biddy's now hidden tweets and so on and so forth. So we're seeing that he lives in this flavorless beige box. It's furnished very mannishly, by which I mean brown couches. No ornaments, and so on and so forth. Pool table. Hang on a second. There are two ornaments, and they are completely white squares above the pool table with nothing on them. How dare you? So what you find out actually, like, in in later extras, I guess maybe it's a reveal. I don't know if it was intentional, is that they are actually prints of photos that Jack has taken of Samwell. But yes, you can't see that. It's kind of like a nighttime shot in this condo. Jack is just walking in the door. Uh, Actually, I think the idea of the sunken living room is kind of cool. Like, this is obviously a modern condo, but nice 1970s, you know, sex on the docks, Chelsea Pierce callback. The one thing that's sort of a personal detail that we see in the first shot is that there's something that looks like the silhouette of a rabbit on Jack's counter. And what we find out is it is actually a set of black and white rabbit-shaped salt and pepper shakers. The other thing that is kind of like a personal touch in this otherwise pretty fucking bland apartment is that Jack's fridge has all of the notes that Biddy has been attaching to his sandwiches stuck on it. And everything written on all of these notes is something that if somebody said it to me, I would think they were being patronizing and not that intimate. And I guess now that I'm complaining about this, it's possible that this is deliberate on Biddy's part because, like, they're in the closet, so he can't say anything like, wish you weren't circumcised or, like, whatever it is that Biddy would be writing in these notes. Yeah, it's just the things are, like, one day at a time. (laughs) Keep reaching for that rainbow. Actually, they're, like, not even that specific. They're just, like, very general and, like, have fun out there. You make me so You make me proud. so proud. <laughs> One of them obviously says, you're so strong. All of this to me is like not interesting and not personal. And like, I get why this is how Jack and Biddy would operate. Like, I, I accept that this is probably like true to them. But these are the equivalent of like the sayings inside of Dove chocolate wrappers in terms of their depth and specificity. <laughs> like it, it's just if somebody like like you want to know what I have a really close friend who I have a really intimate relationship with. And every single year 
he sends me the same box of chocolates for my birthday. And the note that he writes is happy birthday. And every single year I'm like, you could have just saved like the 50 pounds that you spent on sending me really nice chocolates and for free written me two paragraphs in a card. That's like what this is to me. I mean, and it is. And I think what's interesting about that is that I too buy that Jack quote, boring prose stylist and quote Zimmerman and Biddy quote, I hate reading and quote Biddle, Biddy Biddle. Yeah. His name, you know, anyway, I really do believe that they might write to each other like this because how shall I say this? Okay. You know, Rupi Kaur, the poet, not my style, but I think you can argue that she's effective because she sculpts with idiom. And I think perhaps, perhaps we can see Biddy and Jack as sculpting with idiom because they are, they just haven't read or thought enough to have any other, any other language available to them. And so like, you know, maybe Biddy, the only thing he's read since he got to college is the inside of Dove Chocolates. And like, that's all he has to work with. And that's okay. That's the thing that happens to some of us sometimes. All right. I think what drives me kind of bananas about it is that to treat these as though they are something specific and meaningful and a proof of some kind of transcendent love is just like wild to me. First of all, because I completely agree that... Sure, this could be an expression of love for Biddy and Jack, whatever. But, like, what does that mean about who they are and what that love is and what they're doing for each other? And is it really proof of something particularly special? To me, they are really patronizing because, to me, these notes read like nothing so much as what I remember mothers tucking into the sack lunches that they made for their children in grade school. Now, my mother, oh, she would never. But some mothers allegedly, quote, love their children. And I listen, I don't know about that. But they would express this in these little post-its or these little notes that they would, like, stick in these lunchboxes. And we even see Jack's, like, lunchbox open behind him. And so to me, this whole thing has like a very strange air of maternal energy, which I think is interesting, but which is not proof of transcendent sexual love. It's like kind of bizarre, you know? So that's that to me is is how these notes feel. Well, tomato, I see you. No note from your mother <laughs> and raise you. To this day, my mother writes for me the most incisively cruel notes. And leaves them everywhere. So I guess you raise a good point. Yes, this is Biddy being not cruel. I guess that's a form of love. Allegedly. There's a middle ground, we've decided. I don't really understand, you know, love that's affectionate, soft, or kind. That's just not really my milieu, if you will. But but yes, I think that at least Biddy is trying. However, uh, he's doing it about as well as a harried mother sticking a note into her child's sandwich and uh, it gets covered in jam and maybe the kid accidentally eats it. So we already have one fic that you wrote where Jack eats a toothpick. So, you know, <laughs> someone out there, right, Jack, eating a bitty note. <laughs> Something that's interesting to me about these notes that I spent way too much time thinking about for like all that they do not fucking matter at all is that 
We're supposed to think that in the previous comic, Shitty was out of line for accusing Jack of having a girlfriend. However, this is what's on Jack's fridge. Now, a few strips from now, when Jack and Biddy confess that they are engaged in a romantic relationship, we find out that Shitty already knew that they were engaged in a romantic relationship, and it's because he saw these very notes on Jack's fridge. And I'm just trying to figure out if Shitty hadn't seen these notes and deduced that Jack was dating Biddy in the previous strip when he accused Jack of having a girlfriend. But in a couple of strips, when he knows that Jack was dating Biddy because of these notes. So like, what's going on here? Did Jack accrue all of these notes over like a couple of months and then put him on his fridge and then invite Shitty over? Or did he get all of these notes in between two times that he saw Shitty? I, this doesn't matter. You know what? Like, don't worry about it. It it just, it's, I, I don't know how well this comic is plotted. What I will say is, what was really great for keeping track of how this comic was plotted was the Twitter, which, as I think I probably already mentioned, is now locked. So you can't do it anymore. The tweets from years one and two are still posted on the website and a kind of selection of Ngozi's choice tweets are available in the so-called chirp book that some people have access to. But all of the tweets that were supposed to be from year three were only unlocked once the comic ended, and now the whole thing is locked. It's no longer possible to know as easily when things are actually happening in this comic. Anyway, the notes. The notes are appended to the sandwiches, and I think the sandwiches in general probably demand some discussion. Oh, I just briefly want to say that I, as you were talking my brain presented me with a truly insane and yet weirdly plausible theory of the sandwich creation, which is that Biddy one weekend at Jack's lovingly prepared all of them and put them in the freezer with like dates attached or like the notes already pre-written and then very careful instructions as to when Jack should take them out, thaw them and bring them because I don't otherwise know how he would be Constantly getting Jack exactly the right sandwiches at exactly the right time. Well, first of all, Tomato, allow me to just say for anybody who's thinking about maybe doing this, that would be a bad way to make sandwiches because the process of defrosting would ruin the sandwich. I mean, I concur, but I'm not thinking about Biddy as a a baker non-pareil here. That's not the right word. (laughs) But I'm thinking about Biddy uh, wanting to control everything that goes into Jack's body, which is just pleasurable for me. Yes, and and that is a that is a delicious potentiality. Having said that, however, there is some stuff in the blog post about how when Biddy's not around, Jack continues to make his own sandwiches, and also Biddy, whenever he's at Jack's or whenever Jack sees him, he gives Jack a loaf of bread and a jar of jam that he made and some, I guess, nut butter that he ground so that Jack can make his own sandwiches. However, yes, that still doesn't explain the notes. Making a sandwich for somebody is is like a nice sign that you care about them and it's a loving gesture. At the same time, it's also the case that like making sandwiches for a grown man is parental and kind of babying. 
Peanut butter and jelly is like a classic delicious sandwich combination. And in some ways, it's like only as basic and uninspired as you don't care to make it. But also peanut butter and jelly is like classically a children's sandwich for toddlers. Like it's basically for the least refined possible palate. And indeed, this is a hockey tradition of Jack's going back to like when Jack was a kid. He's always made pregame peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for himself. So this isn't like a new thing, but yeah, this is a new twist on it that I think our friend Tomato has some interesting things to add. Well, thank you for the vote of confidence, which you shouldn't give me. But listen, I as mentioned, feel completely crazy about this. So forgive me in advance. First of all, I want to talk about PB&J in relation to the actual NHL. It's a common pregame snack. And specifically, we've talked about Sidney Crosby as being one of the likely, you know, figures after which Jack was modeled. And Sidney Crosby, a famously insane person who has extremely rigid superstitions, eats a peanut butter and jelly, as I recall, like as a snack at 5 p.m. before a game. And so I think that this is probably where Ngozi got that superstition from. In addition, aligning the specific jams with specific specific, you know, play skill, et cetera, that, that's also a classic Sidney Crosby superstitious thing. So first of all, there is a real world equivalent of this kind of superstitious habit. I think it's worth thinking about, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but thinking about superstitions and Jack as a locus of control for someone who has really severe anxiety, especially Jack, who we know at this point is finally doing the thing that made him almost take his own life at 18. And so continuing with these superstitions, continuing with the sort of loving and caring gesture of Biddy's would work to combat some of that control, some of that anxiety, and allow Jack to like maintain control over something which is ultimately uncontrollable, which is like weird physics and a rubber puck on ice that you skate around. There's like only so much you can do to actually control, you know, how a game unfolds. So this is like a locus of control for Jack, which I think is interesting. Meanwhile, Biddy, I think we see use mothering and caretaking. We've seen him do this with other characters. We see him do this with the frogs when he makes some mini pies. We see him do this over and over again, uses these like moments of caretaking also as a locus of control to either deal with his own anxiety, making sure that people like him of sort of dealing with his own insecurities. And in this particular case, I think like it is both a way of reaching out to Jack and saying like, hey, I'm taking care of you. You're in a relation, like we're in a relationship now. This is what I am going to do. But also it's a way of, again, like literally controlling what's in Jack's body, which is like very delicious and interesting. And also it's a way of performing caretaking so that Jack, you know, far away in this wild NHL world full of like hot puck bunnies and hotter NHL players, they're not hotter, but you know, whatever. I think that this is a way of Biddy kind of reaching out to Jack through this food and keeping in contact with him. So that's part of what makes me feel really interested in the mechanism of the PB&J as like a relational thing for them. But what really makes me feel bananas is these notes. And as I mentioned, I find that the notes are very motherly because of, you know, the way that moms allegedly at least put notes in their children's lunches and the specific tone of the notes that Biddy Biddy makes which as Secret mentioned like yes maybe it's that he can't say like I want to suck your dick love Biddy but there's things he could say oops there's things he could say beyond one game at a time or you make me so proud which are these kinds of patronizing 
parental, non-specific expressions of pride and love that like actually put Biddy rhetorically on a level above Jack in this very interesting way. You make me so proud, for example, indicates that Jack is doing something for Biddy to please Biddy or that Jack's, you know, work in the NHL has anything to do with Biddy, which like it doesn't or one game at a time. Like that's a nice reminder, you know, sure. If you want to read this as, you know, on its face, Biddy is reminding Jack to like, take it slow, to relieve his anxiety, to, you know, deal with whatever comes up for him in a meaningful way. But also one game at a time is like a now, now little man, like, don't get ahead of yourself. There's a way to read it that's very patronizing. And so I think that that's really interesting because when we think about like parental relationships, being patronizing often is one of them, like a one way that those relationships can happen. And so we don't actually know that much about the role models available to both Biddy and Jack. This is like my magnum opus where they're each other's parents, by the way, like I still haven't written this essay, but you know, someday. But meanwhile, we don't actually know that much about Alicia or Suzanne. We don't actually know that much about their careers, their personalities, their likely mothering styles, but we can guess certain things uh, based on what we see in the comic. Likewise, we don't know that much about Coach and Bad Bob, but we can guess certain things based on what we know about them. And if we think about the way that like marriages in our lives, relationships in our lives, like in the real world, act as models for how we behave within our own relationships later as adults, I think there's something really fascinating here about the way that Biddy is adopting this mothering strategy in order to appeal to Jack, who doesn't appear to have a particularly close, close relationship with his mother, although we don't like really know. And I also think there's something really interesting about the way that Jack then is adopting this more, quote, masculine, you know, mode of being or whatever throughout this entire comic. Because when we think about Biddy and his relationship with his father, Coach, we can see that Jack is the kind of man that Coach would wish Biddy would become and that Jack also, like Coach, is this like highly masculine, quote unquote, sports figure. And so what we end up seeing then is that Biddy, through putting these notes into these sandwiches, I would argue, is enacting a kind of motherly care that Jack, we, we at least don't see Jack really get much of in the comic and that we do see Suzanne give Biddy. And at the same time, we see Biddy get approval from this sports figure of Jack in a way that we don't really necessarily see Biddy get from his father throughout the course of the comic. So there's this really interesting gender dynamic, homonormative mom problems that sort of, I think these sandwiches evoke for me, which is why I'm obsessed with them. I also think that like both of these stories, you know, Biddy sacrificing for Jack, Jack sacrificing for hockey, but also for Biddy, both of them sacrificing for each other by being in the closet, is this interesting expression of sacrifice related to the sacrifice of the body that I talked about earlier. So like this is a little bit more associative. I, I wouldn't necessarily like write an essay about it, but I think there's something interesting in the way that Biddy is sacrificing his like fun, you know, his fun couple last years at college where he could be not worrying about things for this intensely domestic, intensely serious relationship in which he is already adopting a motherly role, despite the fact that they've been together for like, you know, three months or whatever. And then Jack is adopting this very like paternalistic, potentially you could see it that way, or um, or childlike, like both paternal and childlike role 
rather than focusing on his career and like really focusing on the position that they're in. So this relationship kind of brings both of them out of these two different life stages that they found themselves in and puts them in a weird parental slash childlike role. And anyway, that's why um, Jack is going to join Nambla. Not really. Maybe. We'll see. Anyway, the thing that makes me crazy about this is that obviously nobody thinks this way about these PB&Js. Like I'm the only person on the planet who wants to lecture anyone about these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and how they mean so much. For most people in the fandom, they are just like expressions of true love. But what I think is cool is that they are expressions of true love. And at the same time, they represent all of these other bizarre, fraught patterns in the relationship that I think you can really explore in fandom and that you can really like make a literary argument about in a really deep way, even though like tomato, it's not so deep. It's just peanut butter and jelly because of Ngozi's strange blog post because of the way the notes operate because of these other sort of factors i think all of a sudden these pb and j's both are just like normal and also just like completely crazy and completely this fraught sight of like parental absence and desire and that's really delicious for me i don't know it can be as wholesome as you want it to be but i also think it can be as deeply as bizarre as you want it to be and that it is therefore kind of illegible or inscrutable in the ways that ngozi's writing is at its best when she is you know making a moment where we can't read a character's face or making a moment where a character is so overwhelmed by emotion that we're just like not sure what's going on i think that this is another expression of that kind of illegibility that makes the comic so delicious because you can approach it from multiple angles okay that's my argument about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches thank you very much the only thing i really have to add is that peanut butter and jelly itself is delicious it's a good sandwich what more can be said really i love a peanut butter and jelly sandwich um what kind of jam do you like on your pb and j i love i love a raspberry i love a blackberry i love a a red fruits i love a a tart sweet jam with the smoothness of the peanut butter although i prefer crunchy peanut butter but i think that's what i that's what i love what about you my preference is raspberry um i've actually i don't eat enough peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in my life that i have spent a lot of time experimenting with different jam flavors but this is actually really intriguing i'll tell you what i don't want i don't want blueberry and i don't want grape and i actually i don't want jelly in the like smuckers u.s i i actually don't want a jelly i i prefer jam that's like fruit preserves i prefer a jam or a preserves as well I, grape is okay but it freaks me out it's like it's like not a jam i grew up eating and it feels very kitsch to me in a way that i i don't know it's like a fun adventure but it's not something i want every day well it's like it's like i don't really even know if there's like a lot of grape jam it's usually jelly like not actually like the the fruit but like that uh, you know what i'm talking you've had a sandwich before listener although here i should probably clarify because i do know that we have non-us listeners in the u.s jelly almost exclusively means a fruit spread that is similar to jam but doesn't have physical pieces of fruit in it it does not mean like gelatin dessert that we would call jello 
Even if we didn't mean it like we were using the brand name product Jello, we would just call it Jello. Biddy is making the preserves. He's obviously making like a jam or a preserve where he's like cooking down fruit. So he probably Jack isn't even eating jelly on his peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Peanut butter wise, I'm like a like all takers, honestly. Like it doesn't even have to be peanut butter. It can be like almond or pecan butter or like some something whack like that. I'm I'm into that stuff. With a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, any kind of peanut butter, honestly, like waxy, skippy peanut butter or really lovely, roasted, organic, oily peanut butter. It's all delicious. What I will say is that I want a soft piece of garbagey sandwich bread out of a plastic bread bag. For texture, it needs to be like soft and luscious i'm not using like a really good dense piece of sourdough on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that to me would be not delicious i like a sourdough i like a pillowy sandwich bread but i don't like it if it's too limp i didn't experiment that much with peanut butter and jelly actually until i got long covid and i like i like couldn't eat anything with flavor and i also didn't have any energy and peanut butter and jelly became like a go-to food for me and Wow, there's lots of things you can do with it. Recently, my partner's family made kiwi jam, which is not good with peanut butter in my opinion, but is delicious, which I didn't expect. So try that just on toast by itself. So not related to peanut butter and jelly, but I tried it with peanut butter the other day and it it wasn't for me. So that's something I don't want to eat on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Just the idea of kiwi jam grosses me out, to be honest. I was not about it and then I ate it and it was really good. I was very skeptical, but it tasted really good. I like raspberry. I like lingonberry or currants or blackberry. It basically, it it has to be like tart fruit. Well, I think it needs that in order to cut through the peanut butter, right? Like I I completely agree. I think that's one of the reasons I don't like grape jelly or I don't like, you know what I don't like is like strawberry jelly or jam. That's not really my style. And I think it's too sweet to really bring out the part of the peanut butter that I like. Like I like the contrast between the the tartness and the fatty nut butter. I don't like strawberry jam that much in general. I would like it on like a, a nice cake, like the right cake. I think it would be good. You know what's really in season in the UK right now that I make a lot of jam out of is rhubarb. I wonder how that would go. Well, strawberry rhubarb, like my favorite pie, and I've never tried it with peanut butter, strawberry rhubarb, or rhubarb that's like sweet, obviously, but that might be, that might be good. But I feel like that would be good with like a more interesting peanut butter rather than like the, the Skippy style corn syrup friendly peanut butter, you know? Does that still have corn syrup in it? Depends. I mean, not all of it does, but some of it does. If it's sweetened. And this kind of peanut butter is good. I use it for like baking. Oh, I mean, I think it's tasty. I just don't know that I would want it with rhubarb. I think that rhubarb is like too complex a flavor and then that peanut butter is like a little too, a little too one note. I would want like more, a more complex peanut butter, I think with rhubarb. So at least the peanut butter, at least the version of Skippy peanut butter that they sell in the UK, it has sugar in it, not corn syrup. I might have been wrong, but I'm pretty sure because I looked at it and I was like, oh, interesting. Ooh, Skippy peanut butter blended with plant protein. You know, I would eat almost anything with peanut butter. Like, I'm very, very pro-peanut butter in both savory and sweet dishes. Give me some peanut butter noodles. Mwah. Delicious. So interesting. According to the the U.S. peanut butter website, which, by the way, is peanutbutter.com, 
in the U.S., the same peanut butter is made with corn syrup, and it also has like way more ingredients in it, like zinc oxide. Huh. So the peanut, now I'm like, now I'm just like, oh, this is interesting to me. I'm going to buy like commercial peanut, commercial peanut butter or whatever. The peanut butter that I like is called Skippy Natural. It's the same consistency, but I don't know for what I think it, I think it like tastes better. I also like that peanut butter that you get at like health food stores where it's just peanuts and a big thing and it grinds it. I also like that peanut butter. Isn't that basically just like the natural, like organic peanut butter? Yeah, it separates easily and the texture is kind of weird, but I, I like it as well. I've never I've never used one of those. It always seemed like fancy. It is. I don't get it all the time, but every once in a while I'll get it and I'll be like, ooh, the la. I'm living in the lap of luxury. I don't know. I I like peanut butter. Somebody recently made me feel bad for liking it because they were like, I think there's too much nuts. I was just like, you know what? Fuck you. It's delicious. It's like eating frosting. I don't know what you want from me. It's really good. Too much nuts? Like in peanut butter or just like in the world? No, just like there's like the nut flavor profile is too dominant. Well, it, hmm, hmm. I think that that's part of the product. So I, I just don't know what to say. Oh, no, 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 like, in the world. This person was arguing that, like, they were tired of, like, seeing peanut butter in places and, like, nuts are overused in food. Well, I guess agree to disagree. Give me those nuts. Yeah, I, okay. Well, speaking of nuts being overused, there is a strong rabbit and or bunny rabbit theme through the comic here, and it becomes very prominent in this trip. So there's the salt and pepper shakers. And then also, Biddy has drawn a little picture of a rabbit on the first post-it note that Jack is looking at at the beginning of the strip. Around this time, so like fall 2015 in the timeline of the comic, Biddy dresses up as like a sexy rabbit onesie for Halloween. His freshman year, he was four. And then his sophomore year, he was Mrs. Lovitz, the love interest question mark character in Sweeney Todd, who helps the uh, titular Sweeney Todd make meat pies out of people. Famously played by Angela Lansbury and Patti LuPone, two very important gay icons, I would argue. And in the uh, Tim Burton adaptation by Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, yes. Another very important figure. So somebody should send me an ask about how dressing up as Mrs. Lovett is like campy and fun and gay. And what Biddy does with this rabbit outfit is just like degrading and makes me unhappy. Now, I should note that Jack is said to find the rabbit costume really hot, which to each his own. Do you think that maybe Senor Bun was just there a little too often and Jack just imprinted? Or do you think that this is like a longer standing problem for Jack? I think the implication is actually just that Jack finds Biddy really, really hot. Sure. So if Biddy is wearing something scantily clad, he'll be horny for it. Sure. But... Seriously, you should look up the fan art of this, like Google 
like Chuck Please, Bunny, Halloween, or something like that, and I'm sure it'll come up. It literally is just like short shorts, body hugging onesie, rabbit ears. Like, it's fucking insane. And the only reason why I bring it up is because we have all these other, like, motifs of rabbits cropping up in this particular strip. And then, yes, you mentioned the senior bun thing. And if you tie it all together, it's a kind of motif that runs through Jack and Biddy's relationship. Couple all of this with the fact that, you know, hockey groupies are said to be puck bunnies. We have this weird tension between this, like, thematic signifier in that, on one hand, there's all these horny associations with rabbits, the puck bunnies and playboy bunnies. Sometimes people are said to fuck like rabbits or whatever if they're having a lot of sex. So it's like all of this is kind of implying that Jack and Biddy are getting kind of hot and heavy. But on the other hand, bunny rabbits are cute and small and fluffy and adorbs and like very childish and juvenile like i think of the there's this there's this baby book about teaching your baby what textures are called like pat the bunny where there's like a little fluff of cotton in between the cutout pages and on every page, it's like, pat the bunny and you touch the cotton. I, you, you want to know what, believe it or not, it's been decades since I've looked at this book. But my point is, I mean, there's all this like Peter Rabbit, like the Velveteen Rabbit. The Runaway Bunny. The Easter Bunny. It's cutesy, childhood, like maudlin at times, but also spoofy, thematic stuff. And we get this really weird contrast, like, right down the middle of Jack and Biddy's relationship, where, like, on one hand, it's like, oh, yeah, man, they're, like, really fucking into each other and just, like, having pickup truck nasty shorts stuff. But also it's like, ooh-woo, <laughs> like, ooh-woo adorable zimbits. All I really have to say is you can understand per our conversation in the next in the last episode why some people think that Jack and Biddy are like meant to be like having tons of sex horny. They're a hot item. And why other people are just kind of like, this seems childish and not like something that I would find sexual. Because both of these things are encoded into their relationship. And this buddy signifier that crops up in this strip is uh, honestly not a bad way to express it. Someone please do send that ask to secret. In fact, I might send that ask to secret because I want to see the essay that would result. But I think that there's something about, you know, the Playboy bunny and the wholesomeness slash eroticism of like young women and the way that that has ripple effects in like twink and queer male borrowings from and playful adaptations of and pushings on gendered expectations and also i think that there's like this long-standing perhaps you know really get into this at another time but i think there's this long-standing relationship between gay men and mothers that like is 
endemic in especially homophobic discussions of like who gay men are and what they do but is also true like is also true in some ways culturally between you know like single men and their mothers like like there's just a lot going on with that particular relationship which is part of what you know makes the pb and j's like insane to me because they're performing these like kind of weird roles for each other if i think about who biddy in a watsonian sense if i think about who biddy is and who biddy would have seen as role models his mother you know who biddy saw as role models for being a man and who biddy saw as other role models for how to be a person outside of that sort of limited and rigid set of rules like i think that it makes sense that he would end up in this weird tension between wholesomeness and eroticism or innocence and eroticism because i think that that's often where feminine and effeminate or flamboyant or somehow like non-masculine people end up i think that especially with womanhood although not only with womanhood there is this like you know real conflation of eroticism and innocence think about like the schoolgirl fetish right or the playboy bunny is kind of playful and innocent but the reason that the playboy bunny is like taboo is because it's turning this figure of childhood into this sexual figure and so it makes sense to me that biddy would like respond to that play to that whatever in a Watsonian sense. But I think in a sort of like Doyleist sense, what's missing from the comic, or at least it doesn't work for me, is that often in queer explorations of gender and pushing on these boundaries in sort of pandering to the audience and sexual or erotic art, etc., there's a consistent and, you know, somewhat legible sense of irony and play and a deliberate toying with boundary and expectation. But I don't necessarily feel that in this comic. Instead, I feel like it's not legible. It's not consistent. That sense of irony or distance or critique is not evident all the time. And so instead of, I don't know, I was thinking about John Waters films and how those films very often like push on gendered expectations in a way that's like very fun and weird (laughs) and how there's elements of that in this relationship, but it doesn't feel deliberate or ironic or thoughtful. And so it just ends up feeling illegible. I'm just speaking like a different queer vernacular than whatever one Ngozi is speaking, if Ngozi is indeed speaking of queer vernacular at all. And I think that that's one of the problems that people approach the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or the bunnies or whatever. I think that when people approach these motifs differently, part of the reason is like the, of course, the language, as it were, that they're speaking when they approach those motifs. And so I think that one of the problems is that I come to this comic with a very specific like queer reading a very specific queer experience and also a set of like specific queer milestones in media and ways of reading that I don't actually necessarily know is what Ngozi is working from and I definitely don't think other fans are working from so we end up reading these peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in like deeply different ways or we end up reading this like bunny costume in very different ways or you know the sexual tension between Jack and Biddy in very very different ways. I think that it's one of the problems of the comic is its illegibility in this particular sense. Yeah, I think it's missing the irony. I think it's missing basically a queer sensibility. I think I can answer my own question by saying this: freshman year, Biddy dresses up as Thor. It's just kind of like a like a butch superhero dude, but like that in itself is like pretty queer, like muscular, supernaturally virile. Also the fact that Thor, like the Marvel-derived Thor that Biddy dresses up as, is this like blonde, strapping hunk. And to a certain extent, the fact that that's 
not who Biddy is is kind of part of it. It's like winky and playful. It's like there's an informed, like knowing sort of like, huh, in that it's like a little joke. That's kind of queer. Year two, Biddy's sophomore year. He dresses up as Mrs. Lovett. First of all, this is drag. He's dressing up as a woman, a whole woman. And he's not a woman, he's a man. It's Biddy is cis. He has no interest in being um, female or feminized, at least not textually in the comic. He also, like, doesn't dress up in drag. He's not a female impersonator. So the fact that, like, for the special occasion of, like, Halloween, comma, like, the gay New Year's Eve, he is dressing up as this iconic but not totally mainstream female character who is herself kind of like a ridiculous camp figure is kind of funny. Also, she bakes pies. They're meat pies that she makes out of people. So there's all of this like inversion of who Biddy is wrapped up in this costume choice that's queer that's that's like what a gay person would do that would be like a fun thing to like let loose and go crazy on halloween okay dressing up as no character but literally just like horny unitard rabbit i can't even keep a straight face tomato that has nothing to do with anything it's basically like a slash fic feminization fantasy of what two gay guys would be into, one of them dressing up as it and the other one being into it. And I wrote this in our outline. I am sure the minute I say it, that like that's not gay and like no gay guy would do it, somebody's gonna be like, look, here's the gay guy, Gen Z twink who did it on TikTok and like show me the costume so i'm not saying that like nobody would do it and i'm also not saying that it's wrong you know not to kink shame people should get off on whatever sort of rabbit onesies they're into but like it doesn't feel authentically and like knowingly gay in the same way it feels just kind of like, well, here's some horny thing I can make my character do because he's a little sissy, so he would wear this rabbit costume. Like, I mean, I think that's basically the whole thing. And I do think that this is kind of nicely emblematic of where this comic starts to feel wrong. Like, it doesn't actually reach to, like, a version of, like, queerness that I relate to. Maybe I don't deserve one, I guess. I don't know. But that's where I'm at with it. And here's what I really didn't even put on our outline because I just wanted to see what you would say when I brought this to you. Uh, Readers, um, warning. There is, readers, listeners, it is a podcast. There is a website that I do not think you should visit while you are at work. It is called the Nifty Erotic Archive, nifty.org. 
Tomato appears to be looking it up. It is a gay porn archive. It's all like mid-1990s, like HTML, plain website docs. And on this website, there is, I was about to say a fic, there is a story that I think it's called something like Snuggle Bunny, something like that. I think it is a, like a trans, but not like in the, you know, not like, not like moi or whatever, like in the, like in the like weird, like pre-internet age, like 1990s sense of like transsexual, like porn, where a man turns into a woman because of, I don't know, some bullshit. It's been a long time since I've read this story. And then also this guy who I guess is now a woman starts turning into a rabbit and like growing fur and just like completely turns into a rabbit. And then I believe the end of the story is this like hairy rabbit, like trans rabbit lays eggs. And the entire time we were talking, Tomato, I think Tomato found the story. (laughs) The entire time we were talking about rabbits. This was the only thing I could think about. (laughs) The only thing. The whole time Tomato was talking about like, motherliness and caretaking and like you know the the female relation parental relationship submissions stuff i was just like oh god there's this nifty erotic archive story about the snuggle buddy that's the only thing i could think about and um do you have any concluding thoughts i don't know if i found it but i sure found some things that i will be exploring later and um (laughs) and do I have thoughts? First of all, thank you for bringing this to my attention. Uh, I'll be exploring this later. I mean, I guess what I'm thinking immediately is uh, that's fucking weird and gay. And that sounds great. Have have Biddy lay eggs. Why not? Just go for it. It feels uh, it feels just like someone's fucking thing. And that to me, delicious. Maybe part of the problem is that not only does Biddy you know, not only does this not match with the earlier versions of Biddy that we saw as though like by switching from a non-sexual to sexual character, his queerness becomes something else for the reader rather than something about the character. But also, I don't even know if he's having fun. Does Biddy really want to be a Whittle Wabbit? I think that's the real question. The real question. Oh boy. Oh, this is okay. Oh boy. Yeah, the story is listed under transgender slash magic hyphen sci-fi. Life in general had not been going well for me. Or my friends for that matter. I was very good in physics, a genius really, but my poor showing in phys ed put my college scholarship in jeopardy. It's one of these things where it's like people on the internet aren't this whack anymore. Wow, this really is just like... Greg gave up his afternoons at the club to stay home and keep me a very satisfied. Like, there's just something just, like, completely unselfconsciously bizarre and horny about it that just doesn't feel like Biddy in a bunny costume. So anyway, long story short, I would rather read this any day. Well, yep. Okay. This was the only thing I could think about when I saw Biddy in that fucking rabbit outfit. Just literally, I was like, oh, God, here we go. And then Tomato started writing about, like, motherliness and eggs. 
And that was all I could think about. And I'm just really glad that I had a chance to share it with people. You guys should read this. There, I'm I'm reading. I went towards the end where the the there's like a very delightful we fucked so much like rabbits. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's not fanfic, it's like original porn or whatever, but it's very much just like what you would call idfic. Where it's yeah. just somebody's got some fucking idea and you want to know kudos to that guy. They are 110% rushing toward it. I believe I've talked about this before, but I actually got my start on in internet fiction in original MM erotica, not in fanfic. And so this is like really bringing me back to like the first time I read about a dragon fucking a dude. This is like really, mm, this is really bringing me back to a, another era. Wait, who who wrote the dragon fucking a dude fic? Oh, do you know Megan A. Dare? She started LT3 Press and she's still like writing romance. I know of her and I know of LT3 or whatever. I knew of somebody else who like wrote original fic for LT3 Press. Mm -hmm. That was like a dragon fucking a dude. This was before Less Than 3 Press existed. I like read her original fiction on fictionpress.net. And also I think we became live journal friends. And this was before she started the press when all of her stories were free. And she wrote one about a guy getting fucked by a dragon tail. And I was like very alarmed, but read it and had a lot of thoughts about it at like age, you know, 13 or whatever. Well, we've done it yet again. This strip, I think overall we thought it was good. Gave us a lot of interesting things to talk about. On the whole, however, not that long a strip. So not that many like crucial developments to talk about. Well, allow me to just say, put on your pants and also maybe shove some balled up toilet paper in your underwear. Because next we're going to be talking about 3.7 LVA at PVD part one. That is the Las Vegas Aces at Providence part one. I have been Secret OMG and you can find me on Tumblr at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R or S-K-R-T-O-M-G and on AO3, I am familiar. Now, what about yourself? Well, I'm Tomato, and in the immortal words of Snuggle Bunny slash Snuggle Bunny 1, which is the end of the URL for this wonderful story that you shared with me, when I saw the title of the next strip, quote, mm, I had a teeny orgasm just looking. So I'm very excited, very excited about what's coming next week. Meanwhile, you can find me at tomatowrights.tumblr.com. You can also find me on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. And you can find the podcast at checkdisplease.xyz uh, or under checkdisplease on Podbean and on Spotify and perhaps someday on other platforms, but not yet. I'm really excited. I'm really excited. We've gotten to the good stuff. Ugh, we're going to have to do a, a good job on this trip because honestly, this is like the one that I have been like, we need to talk the entire time we've been doing this podcast. Yeah. Like we started this podcast in some senses to do this trip. So see it back here when we talk about 3.7, aces it, Falks, whatever, bring an umbrella. There are no pregnancy tests here. There isn't a need. Come next time.
Is that from the story? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's left. I put Zoom back All up. All right. Well, Tamiga me needs some alone time with Snuggle Buddy. So. Okay. Bye. <laughs> time to stop I'm- recording. <laughs> Check This Pleased is written, recorded, and produced by Secret and Tomato. Our theme music is by Tomato, and our art is by Nahangan. That was very legit.